It's important not to sort of turn this into a tribal us versus them, corporate people are evil and we are the sort of brave new future kind of dialectic because Honestly, there's some serious hypocrisy in that kind of uh, stance because uh, what do you do? You go put up your website, park yourself in Bali and the first thing you do is go cold call and pitch half a dozen Fortune 500 companies and ask for gigs, right? Hey podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, some podcast inside baseball here. This one has been particularly hard for me to introduce. Like I've been going back and forth over my notes and what should I say. And I think part of it is is just I've been such a huge fan of today's guest for so long that I just don't even know where to start. So let me read his own words of a description of a recent writing project he completed called Breaking Smart. Today's guest, if you haven't already guessed, is Venkatesh Rao, the author of RibbonFarm.com. That's a blog that started back in 2007. And it's a little bit difficult to describe, but I'd say it's a philosophy blog about technology and entrepreneurship and making on the internet and whatever this is that's happening right now because of the internet that we're all doing. He's sort of the resident philosopher about this movement. Recently, he wrote a whole series of essays called Breaking Smart. and He described it like this, in-depth explorations of the emerging digital economy and the resulting patterns of societal transformation. The first series of essays at BreakingSmart.com was based around Mark Andreessen's observation that, quote, software is eating the world. So he really tackles like some big issues. And this interview hopefully is no different. I had absolutely a million questions to ask Venkat. Today, we're going to touch on things like blind spots in the lifestyle design community or the lifestyle business community. We're going to talk about work ethic and passion. We're going to talk about things like power literacy. And, you know, I was really curious because Venkat spends a lot of time around technology entrepreneurs. And so we talked a little bit about what bootstrapping entrepreneurs might not know about the venture capital community, that and many, many other topics. So I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy this conversation as much as I did. One quick piece of housekeeping. Venkat uses the term lifestyle design business quite a bit. And that distinguishes it from, say, a startup or a normal business. A startup might be a business that's focused on growth and a liquidity event that would return value to the investors. A normal business might focus on things like the bottom line. Whereas a lifestyle design business would be one that could optimize for multitude of currencies that aren't just money. So for example, we want to see growth this year, but we're not willing to grow our staff past four highly professional team members because I, as the owner, do not want to own a business with more than four team members and so on. We use this catch-all phrase, lifestyle design business, to talk about businesses that optimize for a variety of currencies, generally ones that the owners define for themselves. So this conversation starts when Metcott quit his job at Xerox in 2011. He wrote a really fascinating post called Where the Wild Thoughts Are. And in that post, he made a distinction between a business model and a business philosophy. And it really stuck with me since I read that piece. And here's what he said. He said, a business model is about how to make money. And a business philosophy is about redefining money. He went on to say that defining money was something that only countries used to do and that now individuals have an opportunity to do that. So we start off this conversation by talking about what it means to Venkat to define money. Well, I'd modify that now with the benefit of hindsight to modify your relationship to money. And yes, you have a certain amount of control in defining what money is itself. 
but mainly it's about your relationship to money. The way to understand that at the simplest level is something like what location independent people do, right? I mean, a dollar is not a dollar. A dollar in Seattle is not the same as a dollar in Thailand and you have control over whether you sit in Thailand or not. And that's one level at which you can define both your relationship to money and define money itself because it means different things in different contexts. Take it up a level of abstraction and think in terms of things like frequent flyer miles and gaming systems of airline points to like fly around the world for 200 bucks. And, you know, some people seem to make a hobby out of that. And I know a lot of lifestyle designers are really good at that. And it almost becomes like a bragging contest and so forth. So that's another way you can redefine your relationship to money, how good you are at particular games in which the currency is money but the skill of playing actually resides in how you navigate the system. So those are sort of levels of abstraction. But I think if you want to sort of take it to the most philosophical level, when you're managing a business as opposed to a paycheck and a career at a corporation, you kind of get to see the whole equation where at a balance sheet level, you're looking at revenue, you're looking at costs, you're looking at margins. You're starting to think creatively about things like, oh, when I was in... Paycheck world, a good rule of thumb was to try and invest between 5 to 10% of my money as savings in a retirement fund. When you're a free agent, you start getting more creative and saying, all right, what is it? What does it mean to actually save for retirement? If I invest it back in my business, that's a high risk investment compared to the S&P. But also investing back in my own business is possibly the only chance I'll ever get to invest in an early stage business because I'm not an accredited investor who can invest in like, you know, a booming Silicon Valley startup. So there's another consideration there. Or you might analyze it as, oh, really what I'm saving for is living in retirement and a big expense in retirement is health and actually investing in a good gym membership right now is a better ROI than investing in a 401k. So you start to like get much more sophisticated about what every aspect of money means to you once you are able to see the whole equation. Whereas if you see only half the equation and the other half of the equation is controlled by a corporation or the government's idea of what it means to save well, you never kind of really take ownership of your relationship with money. And the way I do that with a business philosophy is try and sort of understand your business. You get at it sort of one insight at a time. You can't write like a 50-point manifesto and business mission on day one and expect it to sort of actually capture all your learnings for, you know, five years down the line. So one of the reasons I do this business philosophy thing of adding one line to my philosophy a year is it's actually very ambitious to expect to learn one distilled philosophical insight from your business every year and sort of making the relationship with money and business a little more explicit. A lot of people ask me, you know, like I talk about scripts and present one versus the other, and people are really interested in the free agent script, the entrepreneurial script. Are there heuristics that you've sort of come across that you feel like have been effective that you think are worth mentioning for others thinking of breaking out of the corporate script? All right, I'm going to jump in quickly here because the term heuristic is pretty wonky and we use it a lot on this show. So let me read briefly from Wikipedia. A heuristic is any approach to problem solving, learning, or discovery that employs a practical method, not guaranteed to be optimal or perfect, but sufficient for immediate goals. So sufficient for our immediate goals. Every time I say the word heuristic, just think rule of thumb. The first and most important one, I think, is to do it on your own terms and when you're in a good place rather than when you're in a bad place. And where, yes, when I left Xerox, I could have stayed. They valued me there. There was no particular reason to leave. But that's actually the kind of state where you want to leave. Whereas if you leave right after a massive project failure or getting into like a toxic fight with your bosses or because you hate everybody and suddenly decide I'm going to walk off and show them, those are really bad mindsets with which to exit the corporate life. Because remember, I mean, lifestyle design and the non-corporate lifestyle, it's a choice made by individuals and there are hundreds of millions of other people around the world who are still living in corporations. And you and I as free agents often work with these people, consult for them. And it's important not to sort of turn this into a tribal us versus them, corporate people are evil and we are the sort of brave new future kind of dialectic. Because 
honestly, there's some serious hypocrisy in that kind of uh, stance because uh, what do you do? You go put up your website, park yourself in Bali, and the first thing you do is go cold call and pitch half a dozen Fortune 500 companies and ask for gigs, right? You want to get past that hypocrisy. So that's one big heuristic. The other is to make sure that your actions are not coming from a chip on the shoulder or some sort of major resentment. And this is especially true for people in the sort of lifestyle business world, where if you're doing a much more traditional startup type thing in Silicon Valley, where you want to like break free of a corporation and grow to be a billion dollar unicorn, they're actually, to be honest, I think having a huge chip on your shoulder or massive resentment is an asset because some of the biggest, most powerful companies are built with people with like a grudge, nursing a grudge against a system they feel that has wronged them. And they tend to have very messed up psyches, but messed up in a way that makes them extraordinarily powerful business builders that can like build really huge things, starting with the seed of that resentment. But this is actually a toxic mindset for somebody with lifestyle design and bootstrapping type goals, because there you're looking to do certain other things, like find a certain balance, pursue your own ends rather than build a huge company, that sort of thing. So I know that you're doing and consulting for a lot of people in Silicon Valley, those chip on the shoulder types. What's something that you know about that world that somebody like me on the outside might not have noticed or that doesn't understand about that? Here's an interesting one. They hate you guys. The startup world seriously sees you lifestyle design, bootstrap, non-growth, non-VC funded, and don't take other people's money kind of business models as a sort of philosophical and ideological threat to what they believe in. And you can see why this is the case, because if your entire subculture in high tech is work really hard and build huge businesses that create massive amounts of wealth and, you know, put a dent in the universe, then if there are people around who are following a very different script, who also have a very high tech and sort of technology positive approach to life, but then they're saying something very different, which is the goal is not necessarily to be building a billion dollar company and running like operations involving hundreds or thousands of people and killing yourself 100 hours a week. But the goal is to have like a lifestyle that you enjoy and grow only as big as you want to and not go for the aggressive curve, you're offering an alternative to that script. So it's what in Silicon Valley tends to get called the missionary versus mercenary distinction. But that's, I think, an important distinction. It's interesting to navigate. By missionary, that means that they need to recruit people to their vision in order to have it work. Mercenary is when your primary focus is on things like, all right, how do I arbitrage the global landscape of opportunities and create like steady streams of income which can be as which hopefully are as passive as I can make them and then get to like you know fuck you money and enjoy my lifestyle in four hour work week kind of so that's a particular work ethic that's mercenary one sort of not sympathetic reading of that is that it's a very selfish perspective where you're primarily optimizing your own life and perhaps the lifestyles of a few friends around you. And missionary, on the other hand, is they're willing to kill themselves and ruin their own lifestyle and any semblance of like enjoyment in order to have like a huge impact on the world where the world sort of sits up and takes notice and says, oh, this guy put a dent in the universe equivalent to Steve Jobs, even if he completely ruined all his relationships and everybody called him an asshole. You've literally mapped out these emerging trends online that are just happening like right underneath our noses. Like, let's talk about the lifestyle design community as a whole as you see it. What are the threats to that? What are the blind spots? What are the things that the community hasn't recognized about itself, maybe? One big one that I suspect you and other experienced members of the community know that perhaps the new members don't is that there's no such thing as passive income. That's a huge blind spot. Income and cash flow streams are only as good as your sort of constant vigilance and attention and monitoring and, uh, you know, curation. And I think part of the reason a lot of people take the phrase passive income a little too literally is... uh, Honestly, the marketing tagline of Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week, like a lot of people literally think it's four hours, whereas I tend to interpret it more philosophically as you kill yourself putting in, you know, 40 to 80 hour work weeks, maybe in the initial year or so setting the whole thing up. Then for a while, it's stable, but you can take time off maybe for a couple of years to sit back, relax and do 
lifestyle things, but at some point you will need to go in and put in another burst of work to either rethink the business, shift it. If it's dying terminally, restart a new one. That's kind of the way I think experienced lifestyle designers who've been in the game for more than say two business cycles think. Like I know several of you guys now and so far I haven't met anybody who's turned on the (laughs) faucet and left it running for eight years and nothing happened and they're enjoying themselves. It's like every two, three years you put in a huge burst of work to reimagine and rethink your business, right? That calibration of expectations is important and I think that's a big blind spot and I think accounts for a lot of people crashing out early. Like it's the same with blogging. Like a lot of people think you can just set up a blog and run with it and it'll magically create like business opportunities and life opportunities. And what you actually get is there's the famous three month drop off where new bloggers tend to like really fall away at the three month point because they can't sustain it. They walked in with the wrong expectations and when those expectations aren't met, they get demotivated and fall by the wayside. As far as other blindsight threats to the lifestyle design community, I think one persistent theme is this mercenary versus missionary thing, this idea that the lifestyle design community is in in some sense choosing exit over voice, like disengaging from the mainstream economy to a certain extent and sort of creating an island of economic stability for itself, not just in a geographic sense, but in sort of the larger economic sense. So not only are you sitting in Bali or Thailand or someplace, you're also sitting on one of several relatively stable islands of economic opportunity, like, you know, internet marketing or building websites for other people. And you might imagine that they're islands off from the main continent of economics, but they're not. The law of creative destruction applies to everything. And at some point, it could be that one of the big billion dollar startups will figure out a way to create a massive marketing platform that puts all internet marketers out of business by, you know, creating some sort of sassy tool that allows corporate marketers to work without you guys. You're linked to the mainland of the economy and the main continent of the economy, whether you like it or not, which means you have to stay alive to the opportunities that are emerging and stay connected sort of in terms of like in a mindful situation awareness of what's going on in the main economy, even as you try to find a foothold on an island away from it. I'm hoping that you could bring the reader into the Gervais principle. I know it's been a while, but it's an idea that's captivated a lot of people and I think is a resonant idea. So could you just lay out the basic plot of how the Gervais principle works or what it represents? So the Gervais principle itself, I'd say, is part of maybe a 150-year-old tradition in management thinking that sort of draws its inspiration from somewhat cynical observations about the gap between how people think businesses function and how they actually function. There's a tradition of this sort of thinking and it comes from a gap between sort of the values organizations espouse and the reality of how they function. And the Gervais principle is basically an observation about the types of people or archetypes that emerge from navigating the gap. And the inspiration, of course, as you know, was Hughes' cartoon and Gaping Void, which drew a little corporate hierarchy pyramid with a layer of losers at the bottom, a layer of clueless in the middle, and a layer of sociopaths at the top. And the way to understand each of these three personas is starting with the clueless in the middle. The clueless are the people who do not recognize the gap between what the organization says it is versus what the organization is in reality. So they kind of sincerely and unironically believe in the organization as it presents itself. Like, you know, if the CEO presents a vision statement and an inspiring message, they'll believe the organization is literally like that. The losers, on the other hand, are conscious of the gap, understand it, and realize that there is a dissonance, but they choose to do nothing about it. And the sociopaths are people who recognize the gap and recognize further that there must be somebody authoring the gap to further their own advantage and decide to become one of the people who author the gap rather than caught in it or reacting to it. And they become the sociopaths. So that's roughly the model of the corporate universe. And Silicon Valley runs like this in some respects. And I wrote a series about that on Forbes, where in some parts of that economy, The sociopaths can be the venture capitalists and entrepreneurs are often the clueless types who sort of unironically believe in the startup vision without sort of critically thinking about what the startup world actually is like. The pattern occurs all over and the idea is that 
as people evolve in their careers, if they don't develop enough self-awareness, they get stuck at various levels. Like there's sort of a, almost a Freudian notion there that you start out clueless and if you mature beyond a point, you can become a loser or you can jump further to becoming a sociopath, right? By the way, you could probably toss like the lifestyle designers down in like the noble loser opt-outs and then <laughs> the uh, people writing the script. It seems like at least I'm surprised that venture capitalists have even recognized the lifestyle business movement or that it's even a dialectic. You know, it seems like they define the conversation so much for people that want to become entrepreneurs. Maybe that's changing. I push back on the idea that lifestyle designers are sort of the loser dropouts because I don't think they are. I think any sufficiently large community that has sort of an independent economic machine driving it usually has all three archetypes. I've tried actually to map the Gervais principle to the lifestyle design world. And one of the mappings I came up with is specific to the blogosphere corner of it, where take the advice that a lot of blogging how to blog lifestyle designers offer, which is that you should identify a niche and focus on it and really own that niche where you can position yourself clearly. I think that's like strongly sociopathic advice because what actually happens is that niches are like ecosystem niches, like say travel or food or any of the other common ones. And what ends up happening is that the early entrants and incumbents in any niche, they may not recognize this consciously, but this is how it plays out. So when a new entrant comes in and looks at sort of, all right, what's popular? What do people want to read about? And what do I know about? And that at the intersection of sort of demand and talent to supply the content, there aren't actually that many niches. So most of beginning bloggers will pick something like travel or food or photography or one of, you know, a top dozen usual suspect categories, which are already heavily occupied by incumbent bloggers. And what happens is a Ponzi scheme type pyramid forms under the leading people in that niche, where all the new people are referring to the incumbents as sort of the experts and sort of propping them up. So the person at the top of the pyramid benefits a lot. The people in the middle are sincerely trying and working really, really hard, but basically being exploited. And then the people in the bottom aren't really truly in it. They're kind of almost vanity bloggers where they recognize that the game is playing out that way and put in just enough effort to have like a vanity blog, but don't have great expectations of it and don't get great returns out of it. So that's one example. Now, to your other question of venture capitalists and how they even recognize this, one of their criticisms of the lifestyle design movement is that they believe what you guys do wouldn't be possible if other people weren't working really, really hard to create the platforms you use. And on the other side, I think a lot of lifestyle business people are genuinely oblivious of what makes their world work. And the smart ones, of course, get it. They recognize how they plug into the ecosystem. But there are like relatively clueless ones who go around posturing and making statements like, oh, evil Silicon Valley VCs and big entrepreneurs try to control the entrepreneurship script. This is the true way. This is how you can actually own your destiny. And it's like, how hypocritical is that? You're sitting around building a business on top of Skype and WordPress and the Gmail and you're sort of ranting against the big tech. And so that's the funny part of it. But there's actually a very healthy aspect to this dialectic as well which is that I think the two worlds, whether or not they acknowledge it, actually need each other. Because if Silicon Valley creates the platforms that enable the new digital world to emerge, lifestyle designers are the ones who are creating the culture on top of it and sort of living the experimental lifestyles that will become the seed of everybody's lifestyles in about 50 years. Like, you know, they say the William Gibson court, that the future is unevenly distributed, right? The lifestyle design fringe is actually that un unevenly distributed future where what guys like you, which is, I would say, a minority of less than 1% of the world are doing today will be 50% of the world by about 2070. So you guys are sort of the lab experimental people of the future mainstream economy. And Silicon Valley may provide the enabling underlying infrastructure, but they're like the railroad companies. And just as the railroad laid the foundation for the industrial economy, and by about, say, 1950, a huge economy lived on top of the railroads, but most of them did not work for the railroads. A lot of them sort of explored and experimented and created sort of economic possibilities on top of railroads as an infrastructure. So that's the relationship between Silicon Valley and lifestyle designers. And I think in 50 years, we'll see a similar thing. There'll be a huge number of people working a free agent, location-independent type lifestyle, very flexible, very experimental, 
with you know relationships to corporations that are not based on paycheck but maybe on like ongoing blockchain contracts with bitcoin so you know these things are happening so there's actually a healthy relationship and one of the things that i find slightly disappointing is that the slight mutual suspicion between the two worlds of silicon valley and lifestyle design it sort of leaves a lot of value on the table where if there was a lot more positive win-win conversations between the two i think you'd see a lot of really great new businesses and ideas taking shape i would love to see for example why combinator set up an outpost in bali or thailand and say all right we want to fund growth businesses that are inspired by and staffed by people in the lifestyle design community this is not for everybody but for those of you who want that path and see something that has that growth potential we want to help you bridge the gap and grow like a silicon valley business but maybe still stay in bali so i would like to see more more economic activity in the gap between Silicon Valley and the lifestyle business world. I think in some ways your books are sort of about power literacy. Like you're trying to teach people or just show people how they could potentially navigate these situations. Do you have any sense for that? What power literacy is and how people can think about it? I do have lots and lots of thoughts on that because you tend to think a lot about your failures and one of my big failures is the inability to come up with a universal way to communicate this. It's like that's why the red pill metaphor works so well. It's like people who sort of subconsciously become aware of the dynamics that are sort of taking control of their lives when they read something like the Gervais principle there's a probability of say i don't know 1 in 5 that that will be an awakening moment for them and they suddenly reinterpret their past 10 years in a completely new light and it's like an awakening for them but the other 4 out of 5 don't get it they look at it through this lens but somewhere somehow there's something missing where they're not actually able to make use of that perspective or to achieve a new awareness so it's like yes i see that perspective but it doesn't sort of really bump me up to a different way and the perspective if we were to try to sum it up is it seeing social fictions that's the outcome of it but to relate it to your point of the kind of things guys like you Sebastian Marshall Taylor Pearson have these are the guys I've read a little bit of you're much more practical and prescriptive most of the things you suggest are laid out in the form of hero recipes you can sort of improvise and modify them but here are like scripts or little fragments of scripts that actually work and that's like giving a person a fish and they'll eat for a day and really i think for people to mature in power literacy is for them to learn to fish so you know give them a small script fragment and they'll solve one problem and navigate one tricky business situation one time but if you kind of make them consciously aware of just the calculus of power and how this whole thing works they can navigate completely new situations where there may be no recipe fragments and other people may have no advice but they'll still be able to navigate it with a certain amount of self awareness so i would say there's maybe four or five different paths to power literacy sometimes it's precipitated by crisis sometimes by a piece of writing sometimes by gradually accumulating experience i would say one way or the other most smart people will become power literate by their mid 30s at the latest the proportion of people who are smart in that way unfortunately i think is less than a third so two thirds of working people for some reason seem to lack the ability to achieve the breakthrough and kind of i don't know stay stuck their whole life i'll give you one example where for some people having a win is a good thing it builds their confidence on the other hand there are people who react to wins in exactly the wrong way it builds up their confidence into overconfidence they don't really understand why they won or how they won but they just become sort of very arrogant and demanding about it like they've been sort of squashed down for so long that the little confidence boost is enough to sort of unleash the emotional floodgates and then they can't think straight it's like oh i've shown you i can win now i deserve the world and then they get into a different pattern of clueless self destruction <laughs> based on overconfidence and stuff like underconfidence i told dwight that there is honor in losing which is we all know is completely ridiculous but there is however honor in making a loser feel better which is what i just did for dwight would i rather be feared or loved um easy both i want people to be afraid of how much they love me Part of what I love about Venkat's writing is, you know, he's talking about things like business theory and philosophy, but the sources he draws on are incredibly diverse, like from hardcore academic stuff to forgotten tomes 
to the usual suspects and a lot of pop culture stuff like TV shows, of course, like The Office. I think that's part of what sets him apart as a writer. In this part of the show, we're going to talk about some of the media and books that have influenced his writing. And we start out by talking about television. That's something interesting that's happened in the last 15, 20 years, which is television has gotten so good and writers of shows have gotten so acutely observant of how real people act that you've gotten a lot of rich material where if you look at a traditional business book where people are making up like fake pieces of dialogue to illustrate points, like, you know, how to act in a meeting. And then there might be some very good conceptual advice and theory behind it, but then there'll be this completely fake dialogue between two people who talk in certain ways that real people never talk. And then the whole theory falls apart because the person reading the book cannot actually get it. And on the other hand, if you try to learn just from your own real life experience, real life experience has this sort of grayness to it, where like really sharp, poignant moments blend into this sort of background of like banal everyday conversations. And the value of quality scripts and dialogues in television, movies and books is that they bring human interaction into sharp relief for the important bits. And this does not mean that they're all expert management thinkers or philosophers of organizations. It just means the people who write these shows are extremely observant of human nature and are able to pick up on what is important. Television is a great teacher. One of the books that Venkat often cites in his writing is called Seen Like a State by James C. Scott. In it, Scott argues that many of society's problems arise as the result of the state trying to force simplistic and formulaic patterns and rules onto complex societies which have developed organically, something he called authoritarian high modernism. Okay, this is heady stuff, but it's good, I promise. <laughs> the state does this, according to Scott, as an attempt to instill some sort of, quote, legibility onto what it reads as a chaotic and poorly functioning, quote, illegible society. So as many of you know, I've spent a lot of time in a place a lot of people think is quite illegible, the Philippines. So I was particularly interested in a piece that Venkat wrote where he drew on one of Scott's examples of authoritarian high modernism in the Philippines. In particular, the example was when the Spanish colonists of the 19th century tried to dominate the population by attempting to purge indigenous naming conventions. I won't spoil the punchline, but hilarity ensues. One of the examples he covers is exactly naming in the Philippines, where during the colonial era, colonial administrators kind of carved up the island into specific administrative zones and simply gave people living in those zones last names in alphabetical order. So everybody in zone one would have last names beginning with A, so Spanish last names, then B and C and so forth, something like that. So here's what legibility and illegibility mean in that context. When you take any sort of uh, society with a history of several tens of thousands of years, a rich local culture and lots and lots of local wisdom that's sort of embedded in the tacit knowledge of the community, most of that is like the nine-tenths of the iceberg that's invisible. And that's what is roughly meant by illegible. And one of the sort of matrices in which such illegible local wisdom is captured is in naming conventions, right? If you look at traditional naming conventions anywhere, not just for people, but for like, you know, trees and plants. And you start to ask, why is it named this way? So you start looking with an anthropological eye on why the locally specific details are the way they are. And you start to recognize that most of them encode and embody a huge amount of wisdom that you just don't recognize at a superficial glance. Now, what happens when an authoritarian, powerful party walks onto the scene and looks at all this sort of hidden, coded, difficult to grok information in the local landscape and says, oh, all this is just irrational noise and I know better because I'm from a superior culture, so I'm going to impose order and structure on this chaotic nonsense. When that happens, what that person does is impose a different kind of order. What this does is if you impose such a scheme with enough power, it actually gets rid of the old scheme and with it 90% of the captured wisdom in the old scheme. So this is sort of the dynamic behind systems failing through authoritarian high modernism. There's huge illegible local knowledge base that's not visible and apparent at first glance. Somebody walks in with a lot of power but very little curiosity and very little sort of in-depth understanding 
and replaces the huge knowledge scheme with a very shallow knowledge scheme and a huge amount of local wisdom is lost. This mindset's brought on by our culture of the way we've organized ourselves due to industrialization and technology. So what do you see as the implications of these ideas for our careers and personal life? Yes. So this is in part an effect of modernization and sort of this fake scientific notion. It's not real science, but it's sort of this scientism, as it's called, way of sort of understanding everything through very explicit and limited mental models. And the very notion of a career, in fact, is such a construct. Like you and I talk about scripts. The very notion of a script is actually itself a very high legibility construct that captures only like 10 to 15 percent of everything that goes into the illegible process of making a living and a life. And traditional industrial script is actually even more impoverished than that. Like you could actually lay it out on a single sheet of paper where it's like, go to school, get good grades, get into a good college, graduate, get a good stable job in a stable company, work your way through the ranks, pay your dues, get your promotions, get your gold watch at age 65 and retire to Florida, right? And then you sit back and reflect and say, all right, if I could say all that in 15 seconds, but I actually have to live it out in 45 years, what are the chances that I captured more than like a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the substance and intelligence and wisdom required to navigate those 45, 50 years, right? Part of it is is that those notions are so well understood. Those are heavy concepts. Like when you say go to a good school, that means quite a bit to me. So those are sort of cultural notions that we can agree on as well. And I think it's fascinating. One of the projects I guess I'd like to think I'm involved in, but I'm certainly curious about is building out those next script possibilities. But I'm worried about there's this idea of you're risking building a horrible public project housing. (laughs) Well, you sound hopeless, but it's not actually that hopeless. There has been a lot of increasing emerging wisdom in thinking about these issues. One of my favorite notions is from Nassim Taleb's idea of optionality and being a flaneur as opposed to a tourist, where for those who are not familiar with that concept, the idea is, suppose you have to go to Paris. One way to do it is completely script out your three or four days there with all the highlighted tourist spots and do like a full 100% scheduling of everything on a very tight basis so that if the slightest thing goes wrong and you're off script, the whole trip is a shambles and your vacation is a nightmare. On the other hand, you could just land there, explore your options as they evolve, make sure you go to like certain places that are rich in optionality and then sort of improvise as you go along. Now, that's not the same as saying be completely random, right? You do the few high leverage things that you know will have high upside and high optionality and you avoid doing things that shut too many doors. Right. For example, if you're visiting a new country for the first time, chances are you should go to the major population center because major population centers and, you know, big metros like Paris are likely to have way more interesting options than some specialized narrow place where there might be one major tourist attraction, but not a whole lot else. So that's one way to do scripts that are smarter and take advantage of illegibility. Another way is a heuristic known as Chesterton's fence, which I've, I think, written about a couple of times. So there's this parable of two architects who are walking on a field and they come across a fence. And one of the architects says, I don't know what this fence is doing here. It's in the way. I'm going to get it torn down and build a big building here. And the other one says, I'm not going to let you do that until you can actually explain to me why the fence is here in the first place. It can seem like an attitude of like extreme respect to like local culture and making the default assumption that things are the way they are for good reasons and you should understand them first. So that's the moral of Chesterton's fence. Of course, if you push it too far, it can turn into a very uncritical respect for tradition because quite often when you run into a Chesterton's fence-like situation, there is no way to answer why the fence is there. The fence might be there because of 5,000 years of history that you don't understand. And being in Southeast Asia and China, you guys probably recognize that a lot because that's a very, very old part of humanity, especially people who travel in China often come back with stories They have no idea why things are the way they are, but because China is a 5,000-year-old country, that's just the way things are. So you can have 
too much uncritical respect for tradition, which is where I like the opposing heuristic of cutting the Gordian knot, you know, the Alexander tale of the next ruler is going to untie this impossible knot and Alexander just comes and cuts through the knot. So you have to make careful reasoned decisions about whether to use Chesterton's fence as the heuristic and respect tradition and not disturb things you don't understand versus Guardian's knot, where you say, all right, this is overly complicated inherited history and it makes sense to just cut it out and start afresh. So you have to be sort of alive and intellectually engaged in the problem of understanding your environment. What's bad? What causes authoritarian high modernism and the failures that follow is to assume that the only thing you need is what's already in your own head. You think the only thing required to navigate your environment is to take the abstractions in your head and project them onto your environment with force if necessary. Recently, Venkat was on Shane Parrish's Farnham Street blog podcast, and I was taken by something he said in it, so I wanted to ask him a follow-up. Essentially, what he said that is, if you don't update your mental models and the information that informs them, they can trap you in a certain way of seeing, thinking, and being. Essentially, an entrenched mental model can become a depreciating asset. I thought this was such a kind of a cool thought. And I wanted to ask him about it. Specifically, I was interested on how you can hit the refresh button throughout a lifetime. That's a difficult question. I think it's a lifelong discipline to become better at actually paying attention to the world. And this sounds ridiculous. I mean, most of us have our two eyes and two ears and we can smell and we can touch. But for the most part, we don't actually sense or see anything that's around us. A good example of this is drawing. If you ask a normal untrained person to draw a person, what you'll get is a stick figure with a circle for a face and a little semicircle for a mouth, you know? A very conceptual abstraction. And this actually tells you that that's how you sort of mentally represent the very idea of a person in a legible way in your mental models. It literally is a ball-shaped thing standing on a stick with like more sticks sticking out. And if you actually try to train yourself to draw real human figures, it is incredibly hard. And there's this great book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain by Betty Edwards, which teaches you how to actually set aside those mental models, pay attention to what you're actually looking at. And one of the ways she teaches you to do it is to draw things upside down. So for example, if you want to draw the picture of somebody's face, you don't hold the photograph the right way up because that triggers all the sort of abstract mental models in your head, which say that a face is a circle with two other ovals in it for an eye. If you turn it upside down, it sort of screws with your intuitions about what a face is, suspends those mental models, and now you're just looking at a bunch of squiggly lines on the photograph. And then even an amateur draws a portrait based on a photograph that's upside down, you get remarkably accurate pictures. Now this to me is at the heart of how we engage reality in every aspect of our lives, where there is, so to speak, a right way up of looking at things, where when you look at things the right way up, 99.999% of what you see is actually some aspect of your own mental model being projected onto that reality. You're not seeing what is, you're seeing what you're projecting on top of it. But if you look at reality upside down, so to speak, I'm being very metaphorical here, then suddenly all your mental models relating to what you're seeing become garbage and you toss them aside and you really pay attention to what you're looking at. And then you can actually begin to process. If it's a projection, the tricky part here comes when you're challenging your identity by doing that. Right, Because if you buy into certain ways of looking at the world and all of a sudden, well, I'm really looking at the world and that doesn't compute, it might be because it's a threat to who I think I am. I think that is one contributing factor, but I actually don't think that's a major one because we have more sophisticated mechanisms for tuning out distressing information. There's like all sorts of repressions and self-blindings that occur. What I'm talking about here is much more everyday bread and butter mental models that are active even when there are no threats or opportunities in the environment that trigger special processing. And I think this exists simply because processing raw sensory information on a routine basis is just enormously computationally intensive. So we need very efficient heuristics. I need to be able to look at you and say, all right, lines going that way, a beard going that way, quick, 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 check, and that's Dan. Right? So that's the computation I need to make and that needs to be very effective. 
and our mental representations are sort of in an emergent way have evolved to support the kinds of efficient decisions we need to routinely make, like recognizing faces as one. Like I think people have done studies of this. It takes only about 12 lines for people to recognize somebody else. So there's 12 critical lines on a face. So a good artist can capture those 12 lines and make a recognizable portrait of anybody. And that's the way our mind works. We need very, very thin slices of information to make most of our routine decisions and processing more than that is enormously computationally expensive. But the implication for that living in a very modern world, which is a knowledge-rich environment where you have to maintain mental models about 10 million things ranging from like, you know, the GDP of the US and deflation and what Google is doing and has Facebook changed its API and who's on my blog this week. You know, we live in a way more complicated information environment than our uh, Paleolithic ancestors, which means that some of these efficient mental model hacks that were good 100,000 years ago now lead us into these traps of not being able to see the world. They blind us, which is why you leave the trap doors open. And well, I don't have, there's a million specific ways to do that, but the general principle underlying all of them is do the equivalent of turning the world upside down or looking at it upside down so that you suspend your existing mental models and are able to actually look at what you're seeing. Is there one that you have trouble with in particular? I think money is one. So going back to the first theme we were discussing about what money means to you and defining the relationship with money, I pay a lot of attention to that, but I think I'm extremely bad at that. Whereas people who work on Wall Street or people who have very intuitive grasp of the true nature of money and are able to exploit that knowledge to make you know millions of dollars and so forth, they are able to see through to the reality of money in a way I am not where to me money still there's a huge amount of inertia in inherited mental models about money for me from you know my traditional middle class upbringing with very sort of conservative financial values of be frugal don't overspend don't indulge budget efficiently things like that you know i think all that programming is still extremely powerful in my head so i'm not very good at seeing through to the reality of money think of this as how much freedom you have in relationship to any particular part of the real world like I think I'm very free with language like my relationship to language is one based in freedom I can make words do what I want but my relationship to money is one based on much less freedom my relationship to mountain climbing and skydiving is based on almost no freedom because I have like very little athletic ability so it's like how free are you in your relationship with any aspect of the universe you have this quote you said the future of work looks bleaker that it needs to be for a simple reason. We bring consumption sensibilities to production behavior choices. I believe this is from You Are Not an Artisan article. That article, I think, resonated with a lot of people. Could you just bring us through this idea of what does it mean to bring these consumption sensibilities to production behavior choices? By that statement, I basically mean hipsters. So (laughs) we've talked about two personas and archetypes of engaging modernity and the technologically sort of emerging world, right? We've got the Silicon Valley entrepreneur who maybe has a grudge and a resentment that he's nursing and turning into a billion dollar business. That's archetype and persona number one. We've got persona number two, which is a lifestyle designer sitting in Bali, arbitraging certain global cost equations and turning a big business out of like relatively low leveraged effort. And then you've got this third reaction to modernity, which is this is all extremely anxiety inducing and ugly. And I don't like this messiness of navigating the world of Google and Facebook and Android and living in Bali and money and frequent flyer miles. So I'm going to go live in a little town near Portland and learn how to make really the best artisan coffee and start an artisan coffee shop and live in a particular very aestheticized lifestyle. That's the way I would put it, where you're trying to make the appearance of your life script very beautiful. And of course, you're bringing to it certain very literary sensibilities, artistic sensibilities. A lot of these people tend to be very sensitive people and artistic people who are good at design, crafts, things like that. And modernity has not been very kind to these people by default because they come from a tradition with inherited mental models that is inherently suspicious of technology and inherently repelled by ugliness in a very sort of shallow way. And the frontier is an ugly place. I mean, we know that anybody who works at the frontier of the economy or technology knows that it's an ugly, broken place 
but there's a lot of messiness. Everything is broken. Half the things don't work half the time. There's a lot of annoying people, a lot of frauds. You know, it's, it's a frontier. That's not for everybody. And for people who want sort of a more aestheticized lifestyle, like I said, an exemplar of that is the hipster archetype, especially the unironic kind of hipster. The kind who says, oh, really what I want to do is go back to the land and create a farm and grow organic produce and live a simple lifestyle. And then they figure out the real costs and economics of running a small farm where Cargill is breathing down your neck with its multi-trillion dollar agro business and you actually realize what it means to run a small organic farm. That's what I mean by bringing consumption sensibilities to production behaviors where everything you do is motivated by what you want to put on display. You want to be sort of conspicuously seen to be acting out a particular lifestyle. It's like LARPing, you know, live action role playing the act of working rather than actually working. You want to be seen to be a farmer rather than actually be a farmer. So you're almost like you're playing a farmer in a theatrical script rather than being a farmer in real life. You mentioned that they're looking for fulfillment in that way. It seems like you're a person who enjoys working quite a bit based on the amount of output that you create. And so I'm curious, like, do you see yourself as being fulfilled by work or do you think that that's sort of a misguided idea as to look for fulfillment in work or how do those two things relate? Oh, absolutely. Everybody should look for fulfillment in work. I mean, work is a third of our lives and half of our waking lives. We absolutely should be trying to make it as fulfilling as possible. And all of us do. And I wouldn't say I work super hard because a huge part of what I do is just sitting back and thinking. And that looks like just idling to a lot of people. I do enjoy work and I think people should. That's important. People should be emotionally engaged in their work and actually enjoy it. That's a good thing. Where I think the sort of artisan fallacy creeps in is that they're so upset by the messiness and ugliness of the real world and their sort of limited ability to find and sort of grow the beauty out there that they sort of retreat into a world that's really the projection of their own mental models of what an idealized lifestyle should be. So we talked about this before, where you leave the cracks in your sort of worldview open so reality can actually creep in somehow. And if you don't do that and you close it up and you sort of create this coherent and charming and consistent worldview and sort of put yourself in a situation where that's all that actually impinges on your consciousness, that's part of what's going on here with the artisan sensibility. It's like you withdraw from anything even remotely upsetting and you try to surround yourself with people who sort of believe the same things. You cut out news information sources that are about ugly things that you don't want to process. And well, you become a sort of romantic coffee shop owner and failed entrepreneur or an organic farmer with a failed farm, right? Because you've shut out reality and created like a theatrical script to live in for a while. And that's not sustainable. That's why the coffee shop business, for example, has like a 90% plus failure rate. I'm curious about your thoughts on work ethic. It just seems like you've created such an incredible output? Do you just write when something comes to your mind? Or do you sit down every day and write for eight hours a day? Or how do you do that? I mentioned it in the context of work ethic, because it does seem to me that there is a correlation between people that are willing to work a lot and people that make this kind of free agent lifestyle possible. You've said quite a lot there. So I'm going to sort of riff on that from a couple of different starting points. One is a thought from Paul Graham in one of his essays, I forget which one, where he says that one of the most precious and valuable things in life is finding something that you can do for years and years without getting bored and tired by. And if you find such an activity, you should jump on it and never give it up. And that's, I think, a very crucial observation because all of us can do practically anything for about five minutes and certain other things for an hour, for a year, for a couple of years. But there's not many things for each of us that we can do for years and years and years on end without tiring ourselves out because, you know, it's a rich and ever expanding universe that we actually want to explore. For some people, it's music. For some people, it's writing. For some people, it's coding. You know, there's like a few such things. But if you find one, you need to jump on it and never get off that. And for me, writing has been that. And just to give you a calibration of how much I write, I would say between 2007 and now, so it's almost been, well, this is going to be my ninth year in blogging. In the early years, I was averaging maybe 100,000 to 200,000 words a year. And in more recent years, I've slowed down. I have a lot more guest posters and resident bloggers writing with me. So I write a lot fewer, but it takes more work because now I tackle 
more ambitious team, so each piece takes longer. So I would say I've consistently maintained at least 100,000 plus words. So it's important to have like a ground reality check on your raw output, like sheer amount irrespective of quality. And if you don't have a sense of your output in that very raw sense, then it means you don't understand your work. And for writing, it's the number of words that come out in the end, because that also wraps in like rewriting and editing and everything. But the number of finished words that come out is a good way to measure. The Paul Graham code of finding such an activity, keeping a sort of measure or sort of sense of the raw volume of your output. Third thing I'd like to mention is it's important to have discipline, but not necessarily a process. And a great way to understand that is this excellent TED talk by Elizabeth Gilbert. The talk is not her Eat, Pray, Love book, but a talk about what she calls finding your demon. So demon as in the classical Greek concept of this force of genius in your life. That's what the concept means, where if you have this burst of inspiration and you write a great blog post, it means the demon has visited you and possessed you and created great output. Now, the way she presents this idea in her talk is that it's your job to show up every day and the demon may or may not show up. So one day you show up and nothing happens, you're not inspired, nothing good comes out. Another day you show up, again that happens and the demon occasionally shows up. You can't predict, but when the demon does appear, you have to sort of accept and embrace it and let it sort of possess you and take over. And the important thing is the demon won't be predictable at a sort of deterministic level, but you have to be predictable for the demon to be showing up at all. So if you don't show up every day, the demon never will. But if you show up every day, the demon will show up with a frequency that's predictable, but not on Thursday at 4 p.m. every day. So you can't schedule the demon as I will be inspired and write a kick-ass blog post at 4 p.m. on Thursday every week. You can't do that. And that's what I think great writers mean when they say I write every day at 8 a.m. for two hours. They don't mean that they write 2,000 polished words every day at 8 a.m. before breakfast. They mean they just show up, sit down, and start writing. And it can be inspired or not inspired depending on whether the demon shows up. So that's what I mean by discipline without a process where you're in it for the long haul. You're just showing up, showing up, showing up. You don't have like elaborate personal schemes and cues. So those are good. Those are good. It's good to build whatever habits and cues work for you. If being at a particular place, a particular time works for you, do that. If you need certain cues around you, like a, I don't know, beanie baby that you squeeze three times before you start typing, go for it. I am not very ritualistic in that sense. So I don't have like strong ritual elements in what I do. But generally for me, the demon does strike earlier in the AM rather than late at night. When I was much younger, I used to suddenly get inspired at 7.30 in the evening and write until 3 a.m. in the morning or something. That rarely happens anymore for like sheer physical exhaustion reasons. So the demon is much more likely to visit me at 10 a.m. than it is at 10 p.m. So there are some patterns, but I don't sort of set a great deal of store by them. I would say my process overall is keep an eye on the raw output, keep showing up, Pay mindful attention to your output. It's, again, sort of very easy to slide into prescriptions based on metrics like, oh, run these six algorithms on word count, make sure you've mentioned three metaphors in the first paragraph. And I mean, I could make such shit up. But honestly, it's all bullshit. It's You just have to pay attention to what you're doing, try your damnedest, and if it just doesn't seem to be coming together, don't get married to sunk costs and feel you have to like publish that anyway. Toss it, start again. It's words, it's fresh sheet of log paper on your computer and you just get started again. You know, write the trade-off between hitting publish at a disciplined frequency, but also not lowering your standards to the point where you're so obsessive compulsive about I have to hit publish no matter how crappy the draft is every week versus yeah I'm trying to learn an actual skill here which means my game is going to keep slowly leveling up which means my standards should be rising and what I might have hit publish on five years ago without a thought probably wouldn't even make it past a trash can today right so you have to pay mindful attention and ride the trade-offs between publishing frequency and making good decisions on quality control things like that. My job at this point is almost impossible just to sum up <laughs> this episode. For me, I'll just tell you how I feel. I was so excited to talk to Venkat. 
I hope that came through. I could have gone twice, thrice as long, and hopefully we can do it again in the future. Venkat is just as fun to talk to as he is to read. And if you at all enjoyed this interview, I do hope that you'll get turned on to his work. I recommend that you start with his short book, The Gervais Principle. We'll link up to that. This post will be at tropicalmba.com slash ribbon farm. There you'll also find a list of many of my favorite ribbon farm posts. Thanks again to Venkat for taking the time to come on the show. On next week's show, the boss man will be back and we'll be interviewing David Hannemeyer Hansen, a man who needs little introduction. But if you want to do some research, I highly recommend just type in DHH or David Hannemeyer Hansen into your favorite search engine. Check out Basecamp, 37 Signals, Ruby on Rails, Rework, Getting Real, one of the first people on the internet to start talking about the concept of bootstrap your own business, serve your customers, make real money, forget about building a high valuation, high growth startup, essentially build a lifestyle business. And that's not even his main accomplishment. So we're going to have a lot on him on next week's show. We look forward to you joining us. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.